I thought today we will take a break from a lot of the controversial things that I have been saying over the last several weeks on paradoxes. But that doesn't mean that I have chosen an easy topic today, but I want to digress. There is something I want to do, but I haven't had the time this week to work on it. And that something is the uniqueness of the Bible is that it takes trouble to understand pain, not necessarily answer the cause or the reason of pain and suffering, but definitely it takes time and effort to understand pain and suffering. And that we see from beginning to the end of the book. Before we end the series, I will definitely do a little bit more work on it because this is an area that I'm passionate about and I want to do a researched presentation one day and I will do that. During the week, I have also been thinking, in fact, I have shared this with a few people who rang me about something else. I was so excited they had to listen to me. And that something is, we have not truly understood when Paul said, through one man sin entered the world. You see, in the garden, sin is outside human existence. It has an existence of its own without human agency. Outside the garden, sin has become part of human existence. So the saying that my mother has conceived me in sin, in other words, I don't have to commit sin to become part of this the sharer of this universal sin, concept of fallenness. I think it is significant to understand that in the garden, sin is outside. Temptation is real, but sin is outside. There was no reason inherently within Adam and Eve to do anything that God did not want them to do because they were not missing out on anything. They were totally in grace enjoying God's presence, his conversation. But the possibility to fall is very much there. And this is the challenge in the garden. Today, what I want to look at is what is it that God gets upset about? Outside the garden, we have this fantastic conversation and Genesis chapter 4, the conversation between God and Cain is absolutely crucial. Genesis 4 verse 6. This is the key that opens our understanding of God's dealings with us and our own emancipation, our own rescue plan. See, we don't have this conversation in the garden because sin is not crouching at your door. In Genesis 4 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? In other words, why is your face fallen and why has your countenance fallen? It's very interesting that God lifts up our countenance. You know, we read about Samuel's mother who was sad, always miserable. And then she goes to the temple to Eli's credit in spite of all his faults. He pronounces a blessing on this woman and her countenance was lifted up. You know, so her face was lifted up. Virtually, the opposite of that is the shame is removed. To lift up our countenance is to have the shame removed. So I am able to look another person in their eye, into their eye, you know, rather than looking down. 
You know, you often say, I'm sure David probably would have said to many of his students at school, come on, look at, look, look at my face, look into my eye and tell me. You know, in other words, be brave about it and be honest sort of thing. This is the challenge. I will lift up your countenance. So God says to Cain, this is the key. Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Will your countenance not be lifted up? You will have the courage and you will not be ashamed to look at my face if you do the right thing. See, garden, none of these are important because these possibilities are not there. Sin is outside. And if you do well, if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. It is almost like the scene is like that of a circus tent where the tigers and lions and the wild animals are brought in, but they are tamed, mastered, so that they cannot attack. They will not attack. They may want to attack, but they will not because they are kept under discipline. Maybe they are afraid of the, the whip, but they are still kept. Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must discipline sin or you must discipline your life so that sin will be under your control. This, to a greater degree, is what is discipleship. Disciplining sin so that it remains under our control is, in a manner of speaking, discipleship. This is the key. So when we speak of people with self-control, we are speaking of people who have not disciplined the sin that is lurking at the door. So today what I want to do is to look at this terrible incident in the book of Genesis, which we call the flood. You know, I have no problem with a historical flood. I have no problem with a universal flood. To me, as I said once before, if God can create something out of nothing, God can create something out of nothing that is millions of years old. Adam and Eve were not helpless one-day-old babies when God created them. They probably were 20 or 25 or 30 years old. We don't know. And the trees in the garden were many years old. Some of them were probably one week old. Some of them may have been, I don't know, a million years old. I don't know. Because God created a mature world. When God said, let there be, it is possible that there were rocks that were millions of years old. So I don't have a problem with a real creation or a real flood or anything like that. But what is important for us is learning from it. What does it signify? What does it mean? As you read the story of the great flood, which is in Genesis 7, 8, 9 chapters, what images of God do you see? What are the images of God that come to your mind when you read these chapters? Are you able to objectively read it and think of who is this God? Now, I have said this many times. God can stand on his own or her own two legs. There is no problem with that. We don't need to prop God up. I think if we try to prop God up, God gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Because the God that reveals himself in the Bible and in, in, the, in the person of Jesus Christ is the God of the universe. And I often say, it is a confession of the woman on the wall. 
You know, your God is the God of the whole universe. It is a prayer that Solomon prays at the temple, the God of the universe. This is what we see in Isaiah 40 to 55, the God of the universe. And this is the God of the Bible. So we don't need to prop this God up. God can stand on his own two legs. So when we look at the flood, we see a God who does not condone evil, a righteous God, God of justice, a God who punishes evil. I mean, that is there. But we may also see a God who is cruel, violent, and devoid of feelings or compassion. And can you imagine, God has done something no parent would do. Destroy completely the whole world. Thirdly, we may see a God who resorts to extraordinary demonstration of power as soon as things get out of his control. A God who is ill-disciplined. A God who lacks self-control. You know, he gets angry and throws things around. And lastly, we see a God who is vision retarded, who is not able to manage his own affairs or the people under his jurisdiction. Now, don't run away from this. I think we must consider all these possibilities. Then only we can truly discover. We must not excuse God. God can stand on his own two legs. And C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock, is about this. The God of the Bible can stand any scrutiny, any examination. The God of the Bible is not afraid to be examined. And Jesus said, which one of you would find fault with me? Tell me, what have I done wrong? Which one of you can find fault with me? You know, that is a challenge. So we don't need to excuse. We don't need to cover up. We don't have to sort of um, camouflage God. So what do we see in these chapters in relation to the flood? We see an angry, revengeful God. If that is your image, and that is the image of a lot of people in the world, then we have a God who is Sylvester Stallone, Rambo, one, two, three, four. I think you, you know what I'm talking about. Have you seen the movie Rambo? You don't have to see it. I mean, he's, yeah, that's, you know, just a guy who is suffering from PTSD after Vietnam and goes berserk in a, in a suburb in United States and fighting, you know, I mean, he just, there is no, no reason anymore. So a God who is angry and revengeful, you have Rambo. Or you have a God who is impatient and fickle-minded. Then you have Emperor Nero, who plays the fiddle while Rome was burning. And we have many leaders these days who probably would do the same. Probably play golf while their countries are burning. We have an incompetent, incompetent, bungling God. A God who puts his foot in his mouth the whole time. A God who uh, is irrational. I'm not going to mention any names because I think some of you here may not be happy with me if I mentioned any names here. I mentioned Emperor Nero and Rambo and so on. So I let you imagine some of this. And fourthly, we have a callous mass murderer God. Of course, I'm, everybody loves if I said Hitler, a callous mass murderer God. Now, having said that, I am going to ask the next question. What did God achieve by destroying his creation? What did God achieve by destroying God's creation? Today, I was actually thinking about speaking on the theme of the centrality of Christ for our faith. This is very different from that. But I felt it is important to have some of these things dealt with 
before we move into the things that we all agree on. What did God achieve by destroying his creation? Well, before the flood, we read in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, it's not just once or twice. It was constantly. It was on a, like on a loop. Just as soon as it, you know, like you have a, your playlist of music and it comes to the end and starts all over again kind of thing. It's continuous, non-stop. And God said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground. So they were all destroyed in the flood because every imagination was continually evil. So after the flood, human beings were all converted. They did everything perfectly right. Is that right, Heaven? Is that what happened? In Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I destroy every living creature. So what has changed? Before the flood, man was on a loop. Every imagination was constantly, continually evil. After the flood, every imagination, even from the youth, from childhood was evil. So what was the flood all about? Why the flood? Didn't God know that or what? No, just asking. I'm not saying anything. Just asking. What did God achieve by destroying his creation? My answer is nothing. You can have your own answers because the world was not better and the world learned nothing. So what did Noah learn from this great tragedy? Because he and his immediate family were the only ones that were rescued. What did they learn? What did Noah learn? Chapter 9 begins by these words, God blessed Noah. This is after the flood, of course. Such a promising phrase, full of hope, vitality, and purpose. But how does the chapter end? Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. It sounds like he planted a vineyard, the wine grew, there were grapes on it, he gathered them made alcoholic wine sort of thing all in one sentence and it's quite interesting how i mean it doesn't say how many years have passed between planting the vineyard and how many years have passed between verse 20 and 21 we don't know obviously a lot of time let me read it again verse 20 noah the man of the soil proceeded to plant a vineyard verse 21 when he drank some of its wine now just just like that you know uh, <laughs> uh drank some of its wine he became drunk no, he didn't get drunk. He became drunk. I love it. Very passive. You know, he, he just had wine and just got drunk as if somebody spiked the wine. You know, maybe uh, somebody mixed this non-alcoholic wine with alcoholic wine or something. And Noah didn't know. He had a glass too many and fell asleep. And lay uncovered inside. I don't know why when you get drunk, you have to be naked. But anyway, he lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered his father's nakedness, naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah woke up and found out what happened, he was not a happy man. Funnily enough, he did not even curse his son. He cursed his grandchildren and their grandchildren, the whole works. For what? Because he got drunk and lay naked in the tent and the poor boy saw it and he went and told his brothers, hey, dad's lying there fully drunk and no clothes on. I mean, what did he do wrong? I don't know. Just think about it. Did Noah learn anything? No. 
Nothing. So the world is no better and nobody has learned anything. So we have to ask this question. Who repented? Don't laugh. The only person who repents is God. Genesis chapter 6 verse 6. This is before the flood. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. After the flood, Genesis 8.21. Noah built an altar, etc., etc., etc. Verse 21. And the Lord smelt the pleasing odor. Oh, how lovely is that. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. So nothing has changed, but I'm not going to destroy them. So who is the one who changed the heart? Changed his mind? God. You know, we read in the Bible that God never changes. He never repents. But there you are. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. I am not going to do one more bad thing, says God. Virtually. Sorry. Uh, if I sound sacrilegious, please forgive me. So there's one repentance and that repentance is from God. Nobody else seems to be repenting. The dead didn't repent. The alive didn't repent. So we ask the question, why the flood? What was the point? In all this terrible thing. It's the worst thing that has ever happened to human beings. What was the point? Chapter 6, verse 11 and 12 we read. The earth was corrupt and corrupted. In Hebrew, it means the earth was already destroyed. It was destroyed from within. Nobody needed to destroy it from outside. The world at the time of Noah had a sticker on it. Not fragile handle with K but condemned to be demolished. That was a sticker on it. Condemned to be demolished. So the flood was not the reason why the earth was destroyed. The flood was just the weapon that destroyed it. The earth was already destroyed before the flood. It was condemned. Bear with me for another 30 seconds. Condemned to be destroyed. Did God put that sticker on the world of Noah? or at the time of Noah? Let me ask you, who condemns an offender in a court of law? The judge, the law, or the crime? Who condemns an offender in a court of law? The judge, the law, the crime, or the offender? So my answer is, the criminal's action, the crime, in relation to the law of the land, creates the occasion where the judge pronounces the judgment. So who condemns a criminal? Is it the judge? Is it the law? Is it the offense? The criminal's action, i.e. the crime, in relation to the law of the land, creates the occasion where a good judge, a true judge, an honest judge, pronounces the judgment. If he didn't, he will be a crooked judge. The flood was not God's anger. I think we need to get that into our system. The flood was not God's anger. It was not God running out of patience or compassion. God did not change. God is the same God before the flood and after the flood. It was not God acting out of character. It was not even the result of human sin. I think that is puzzling you now. It was not even, I'll underline it and put it in capital bold. It was not even the result of human sin. So what was it? You ask and I ask. Every sin has a prelude i.e. motive, such as greed, pride, jealousy, whatever. Every sin has an interlude, the action, what we do with our motive. Remember, sin is crouching at your door. 
its desire is for you, but you don't have to do it. And every sin has a postlude, the response, how we respond after we have done the wrong thing. So every sin has a prelude, that is the reason for doing it, the motive. Every sin has an interlude, that is the act, the commission. But sin is more than that. I think those of you who have gone through the training would have heard me say, Everything that we do has a head, heart, hand process. You know, that's this is the prelude and this is the interlude, the action. But then what happens at the end, after the event, is also very important. The postlude, the response can be guilt, shame, remorse, repentance, retribution, restoration, justification. And those of you who are do, done our training, week two, you remember the cycles of abuse and victimization or victim victimizer cycle so the victim is wanting justice and the victimizer is looking for justification because every victimizer was a victim once upon a time this goes on so every sin has a prelude an interlude and a postlude in the garden of eden sin and temptation to sin was external to adam and eve we looked at this Outside the garden, sin is internal. It has become part of human existence. Romans 5 verse 12 we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So what happened in the garden opened the door for sin to become part of human existence. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We become, this is a solidarity of sin. God said to Cain, chapter 4, verse 6, we looked at this at the beginning. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you. You must master it. If you do well, what does it mean? What does it mean when God said, if you do well? The word, if you do well, can have many meanings. I'm not going to expose that today. I'm going to leave that question with you to think about. What does it mean if you do well? I have said that the world was condemned, not because God was angry, not because God was acting out of character, not even because of human sin. So then what was it? The answer is very simple. The world was condemned because of its refusal to repent. The world was condemned because of its refusal to repent. And that's what we see in the story of Cain. Chapter 4 of Genesis is the key to understanding it. God warns Cain. Cain goes and kills his brother. But then he refuses to accept responsibility. Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says, this is the key, your brother's blood is crying from the mud, from the soil, and I can hear it. This is what we need to understand, that God of the Bible hears every cry. He collects every tears, as the psalmist says, not a drop of our tear is wasted. He understands, he comes, he delivers, he stays with us. This is a unique concept. Why do I feel so convinced about it that it was the refusal to repent 
that got the world into trouble? Why am I so confident that it was not God? It was not their sin, but it was their refusal to repent that caused the destruction of the world. Well, I'm going to cite a few little episodes from the Bible. First, Nineveh and Jonah. God says to Jonah to go and preach the gospel because Nineveh was condemned exactly the same as the world. Nineveh is a microcosm of the world here. The Nineveh was condemned because it was a wicked city. And God asked Jonah to go and preach, just like God asked Noah to preach. But in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, Jonah goes and preaches. When God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God did not lose compassion just when he marked Nineveh for destruction. Compassion was there. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must master it. But there are times you're not going to do it. But then you must hear my voice that says to you, where is your brother? You must take responsibility for your actions. This is the challenge. The people who want an angry, revengeful, destructive God are the preachers. See Jonah 4.1. Jonah says, I want to commit suicide. Actually, he says that three times in the book. He was the unhappy. See, in the book of Jonah, there's only one unhappy person. God was happy. The people of Nineveh were happy. Even the donkeys of Nineveh were happy because they uh, didn't have to walk around in sackcloth and fast. And the worm at the end of the book was happy because it got some juicy stuff to eat. But whereas, and of course, the sailors were happy because the storm stopped when they throw him out. But the only person who is unhappy is the preacher. And that is a sad part. And Jonah was happy to misrepresent God's character to prove that he was a good preacher. Sometimes we forget and create theologies to prove that we are better than God. And we must repent of that as well. The people who want an angry, revengeful, destructive God are the preachers. But listen to what God says to Jonah. I love it. Jonah 4.11. I think let me read it. I didn't copy it onto my notes. It's, it's a powerful verse and it, that's how it ends. It finishes there. Don't you think I should not be concerned? But why was this God not concerned about the whole world in Genesis chapter 6 and 7? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because they did not repent. Whereas the people of Nineveh repented. And God says, do you think I'm going to destroy them? How can I do it? Should I not be concerned? Can you see why I'm convinced that when we do not repent, we destroy ourselves? God doesn't have to do it. We destroy ourselves. In Acts chapter 17 verse 30, we read Paul saying, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 3.19, we read, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Revelation chapter 2 verse 21, we read, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 17, God speaks about Esau, and it says, He did not find room for repentance. How sad is that, when we don't find room for repentance. Psalm 51 verse 17, King David says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God, 
you will not reject, despise or refuse. And as I have said before several times over, that is why God called him a man after my own heart. Not because he did anything right, but when he broke God's rules, he knew what God wanted him. In Luke chapter 19 verses 41 to 44, Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept. What was he weeping? For their lack of repentance. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You can't see what is the key of your salvation. That is repentance. Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept because they were all going to perish. Something worse than the flood awaited them. They were called to repent and to turn to God. They were warned of the consequences of danger. In graphic terms, love the way he said, How often would I have gathered you under my wings, like a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but you would not. How often would I have gathered you, but you would not, because you do not repent. Jesus predicted it and warned because he was, it was going to happen. That's the destruction of Jerusalem. Who destroyed Jerusalem? The Roman army under the leadership of Titus in 70 AD. But the Bible also tells us that it was a lack of repentance on the part of the people that resulted in their destruction. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 1 to 5 is profound. You can read it. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But the truth is, the people who perish are not always the ones who do not repent. If a father does not repent, sometimes he may cause his children to perish. If a mother does not repent, she may cause her children to perish. So my lack of repentance can affect many other people. If a political leader refuses to, or leader of a country refuses to repent, he can destroy the country. Wrong decisions made by leaders can hurt a lot of people. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 34. Jesus again looked at the city of Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stones them that are sent unto you, how often would I have accepted you, gathered you, but you would not. So rejection of God results in the rejection by God. Two thieves were condemned to die. We looked at it long time ago. They hung on two crosses. Where was God? He was right there, right between them. That's the truth. That's a picture of the Bible. Two thieves were condemned to die. They hung on two crosses. Where was God? He was right there, right between them. This is the true picture of the world. But there is another picture. That same evening, only one of the thieves was with God and the other without God. One repented and turned to God, while the other arrogantly refused God and turned away from God. This is also humanity. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The wages of sin is destruction, but that does not mean that we have to perish. We have the gift of God, and that is eternal life. So the Bible tells us, the gift of God is eternal life. I hope it was not a severe presentation tonight, and I hope it was also a presentation that brings a true picture of God. God does not change. He is full of compassion, but he is also full of justice. 
and the two goes together. And there was a prophet who understood this truth. Habakkuk, he says, in your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, remember mercy. When God is really, really, really angry, what we see is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the cross of Christ. That is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the mercy of God. God is not someone who throws around and breaks pots and pans in the kitchen when he is angry. God is a God of mercy. But when we refuse to repent, God will hear Abel's blood crying from the mud. And he says, what you have done is terrible. Your brother's blood is calling for justice. I am a God of justice. And you are going to be a wanderer without God. And it is pathetic to live without God. I feel sorry for you if you have to live without God. And I feel that way to every person who says to me, I don't believe in God or I'm an atheist because I think, how do you survive in this world without the grace of God? But the truth is, you don't know that God is still gracious to you. That's all. That is the only difference. You are still a recipient of God's grace, but you do not want to turn around and say, thank you, God, because it takes a fair bit of humility to turn around and say, thank you. God said to Cain, if you do the right, will you not be accepted? Will not your countenance be lifted up? What is it to do the right thing? To do the right thing is to be grateful, to be thankful to God. Turn around and say, thank you, a grateful heart. This is what God requests of us. Just a grateful heart, a bit of humility. And that's what repentance is. Is saying, I'm sorry, but I thank you. Well, God be with you, and um, I pray that we will be people who live in grace and not worry about God's punishment. When we live in grace, when we understand the grace, when we can turn around like David and say, what is going to make you happy, God? 10,000 rams? Rivers of oil? No, a broken and a contrite heart. That's all. That is it. That's the key to God's heart. Because if we do not, then God's justice will have to come because Abel's blood, your brother's blood, is crying from the mouth. And I have to respond to that, says God. Well, God be with you.